It is Tuesday, March the 16th, day after the Ides of March. We got through it unscathed, but I'm Guy Adami with my dear friend Dan Nathan for this week's Macro Setup, brought to you by our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest-growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. Dan Nathan, how are you today? Doing great, guy, Dami. I, I okay, love that bring the energy, man. Bring the energy, man. You I love sound that like you mentioned the, the Ides of March. Is, is there is there something in your history that kind of puts that date on your calendar that reminds you that March fifteenth is an important day? Yeah, it's funny when you know I, I when I when Shakespeare was alive and I was reading some of his works. Obviously, Julius Caesar being one of my favorites. You know, the yes. soothsayer spoke of the Ides of March. So it's something that sort of has stayed with me all these years, Dan, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, because I know you like making fun of me and my age. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been doing CNBC fast money for, with you for about 10 years. Uh -huh. And I don't think you ever use uh, a losing opportunity to attach some kind of esoteric date to something going on in the markets. Um, so that's what we just did here to get the macro setup well, started out. By the way, there's nothing esoteric about that. People talk about it all the time. And by the way, we do have a special guest today, Christopher Vecchio, senior yeah. FX strategist from Daily FX, will join us in a few minutes. Just want to throw that out there as a tease, as they say. But, you know, there, there, there are a couple certainties in life. That old saying, there are two certain things in life, death and taxes. I'll add a third, by the way. My jump shot from 18 feet and in. <laughs> but we can talk about that later. But it seems like there's a certainty... And I want to start this one by saying there seems to be a certainty that taxes are going to go higher in this country, something that the market doesn't seem to care about right now, Dan. Well, it's funny, you know, last year, you know, when we were on Fast Money each night at five o'clock and the market's moving around, it's moving around with the polls, right? How the Dems were doing, are they going to hold the House? Are they going to take the Senate? Are they going to take the White House? And that was really going to dictate, right, um, what kind of some of the policy that we might see, the changes. And we know that going back to 2017, that the, the corporate tax cuts were probably the, the, the signature sort of accomplishment of that last administration, right? And they took uh, taxes, corporate taxes all the way down to 21%. And the idea there, it was just going to unleash a level of investment and hiring and innovation, that sort of thing. You know, it never really paid for itself. I think at the time, there was a lot of people who were pushing for the tax cuts said that, you know, an increase in GDP was going to help pay for the lost revenues. So we haven't seen that. Now, all of a sudden, we have these massive deficits, right, that are created from the pandemic, um, you know, dealing with this health crisis, the economy being shut down. And I think the Biden administration is dealing, and like most municipalities um, are dealing with these huge holes. How do you pay for getting us to where we are right now and going forward? And I think one of the easiest ways is raising corporate taxes from what was really an all-time low at 21%. Yeah, and then, but the market's going to, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, there's certain yeah. things I'm not suggesting I want a tax hike. I mean, trust me, it, it, does, it doesn't really help me any. But you have to ask yourself, how do you pay for these things? We're now with the U.S. debt north of, north of $30 trillion after this $1.9 trillion stimulus relief package, uh, whatever you want to call it. I mean, somebody, you got to figure out some way to, to your point, you know, how do you fill in these holes? And the most, listen, the most direct way is exactly this. Now, what we should talk about, it's not the political side of the equation, but what does it mean? For markets, as we sit here, Dan, with our first chart being the S&P 500, I mean, we're a whisper, a whisper away from S&P 4000. And this chart speaks to exactly that. I mean, we've been in this very uh, defined up channel, obviously, since March. The one you have outlined since September, 
And this thing just keeps grinding away. Now, you'll correctly point out that we have broken through it on the downside on a couple of different occasions. Uh, as we say, sort of false moves to the downside, followed quickly by this buying spree. And here we are in the middle of the channel. And it seems reasonable to think we're going to touch the upper end of that channel, which puts us probably a bit north of 4,000 in the S&P 500. Seems to be a foregone conclusion. That said, here we are now some 500 points, 500 S&P points from the 200-day moving average, something we haven't seen since the summer. And the farther away we get from it, Dan, the more it's frightened I seem to get. Yeah, so what's interesting about this chart is that you do see those two breaks, the downside of the uptrend in, in late October, early November. And then again, obviously, um, you know, just a, a couple of weeks ago. Listen, you can draw, as our friend Carter Braxton Worth likes mm -hmm. to say, draw the lines any way you like. The way I drew this line is I was attaching all of those highs since, um, you know, early October, I guess, if you will. And, and that channel is was set by the resistance. And so, um, you know, listen, I, when, when it broke to the downside the other day, did I think, or a couple weeks ago, did I think um, that we might see lower lows and maybe make a run at that 200-day moving average and take out some excess considering how much enthusiasm was already priced in the market about fiscal stimulus, the potential for infrastructure, the vaccines going better than expected, all that sort of stuff. But you know what I find, Guy, really interesting about the S&P 500? If I look year to date, it is up about 6%. And the NASDAQ is also up about 6%. I haven't seen that, where you've seen those performance so closely tied to each other um, you know, in a very long time, because yeah. we've gotten very used to NASDAQ outperformance. And then the other thing that, like, when I look at this chart, it's really interesting is that in that uptrend, you see these violent snapbacks, and then you do see new highs. So your point about breaking through 4,000, which is just a psychologically important number, I guess, um, you know, makes some sense. But um, at the end of the day, I think those tax concerns, there's another tax concern. Real quickly, and I want you to speak to this, okay? Um, a lot of people made a lot of unexpected gains in financial markets last year. No matter, you're going to throw in a dart at the stock market. You're going to throw in a dart at crypto. We have this April 15th tax debt headline coming, do you see people lightening up out of some big winners that are liquid to kind of make some room to pay some taxes? You would think. I mean, historically, that's been the case. And it seems as though people are going to probably play it right up until the end. You're going to push the envelope in this thing, and maybe they'll let sort of the chips ride on that craps table, hoping the roll continues until right around tax day. Of course, you know, the odds are that you'll see a few sevens come out before that and every all the chips will be taken off the table. I mean, that's just the way it is. But this has been the hottest craps table in the history of mankind uh, since basically the March lows. And I think people are saying to themselves, well, wait a second. You know, these sell-offs are shallower and shallower, shorter and shorter in duration. Why don't we just push the envelope a bit? And they've been right to do so. The naysayers and the people that tried to point out uh, some of the flies in the ointment, as they say, uh, have been sort of trampled underfoot, to quote a Led Zeppelin song, and they're going to continue to be. And the other thing I've learned is as much as you, people say they want to hear the truth and all the things that can go wrong, the reality is when the market's doing what it's doing, nobody wants to hear it. They just want to party on, as they say. And right now, the party is in full blast. As we sit here today, again, an S&P approaching 4,000, a level that I never thought we'd get, maybe ever, number one. Well, ever is probably the wrong word, but I will tell you that you know, when we were talking about this last spring, the thought of S&P 4000 to me was folly, yet here we are. But to your point, you know, this up channel has been very well defined. If you're a technician, if you're a Carter Braxtonworth or Louise Yamada, you would say, 
there's a very good chance we touch the upper end of that up channel. And again, that probably brings you to 4,000. But again, we're the, with the S with the 200 day moving average, some 500 points away. I mean, this is historically levels, you know, the deviation between the two is as extraordinary levels. And at a certain point, something's got to give. And I'll tell you, the 200-day moving average is not going to uh, its not going to climb its way up to where the S&P is. Typically, uh, the S&P finds its way back to the 200-day. Anyway, Dan, we should move. Oh, but I also want to mention, because it's important, we have my dear friend who I've never met uh, and somebody that obviously clearly I have some degree of contempt for, Jerome Powell, speaking again. I mean, these guys, it, it's incredible how often they talk. But, I mean, I think if you're looking for something in terms of a catalyst one way or another, some of the testimony or the commentary coming out of Jerome Powell over the next well, couple of days might be yeah. interesting. I guess the point here is we're going to talk about rates a little later. Um, you know, I saw that um, the co-CIO of Bridgewater, which is like a, like a trillion dollar. I mean, it's like a, it's one of the biggest uh, hedge funds in the world. I don't know what the assets under management is, but it's massive. But he's talking about, you know, a new inflation super cycle. Inflation expectations are at 12 year highs. So any slight change um, of any Fed speak specifically by the Fed chair about the potential to rein in inflation. And that's the sort of thing I think that might um, hit the stock market um, near term. But again, it's really hard to find things, you know, with rates where they are and moved as quickly as they did. And you've been very right about the trajectory. Um, you know, equities don't seem particularly bothered. We've seen rotations in the cyclicals, in the financials, that sort of thing. Um, but I will mention this, you know, as the S&P is at new all-time highs, we're seeing that as we're seeing the energy sector cool off a little bit and we're seeing banks. So, so that's two days in a row. Let's go to the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100 really quickly because um – you know, we just talked about how the NASDAQ and the S&P are both up about 6% of the year. With the S&P at new highs, the NASDAQ is still down, or the NDX, I think the high was like 13,900 uh, or so. And here we are, um, you know, just at about 13,250. Um, so we're still well off those recent highs. So that's just showing relative underperformance over the last couple of months. And the chart is pretty well defined. I, I just drew that uptrend from um, the lows in the summer and you see that that intersection of that uptrend with the September 2nd high, we just found some support there a couple of weeks ago. It's above mm -hmm. its 200-day moving average. Um, you know, again, I think we saw some liquidation of some of the big names. We know the top five or six names make up nearly half of the weight of the NASDAQ 100, and there's money that just kind of has moved back into them given their underperformance. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, listen, the downdraft we saw, I mean, that move was lockstep with 10-year yields obviously breaching that 1.5% level. We've talked about it for a while. I mean, this seems to be, obviously, for good reason, the most interest rate sensitive um, you know, group of stocks that we'll talk about. And the sell-off makes sense. Now, the subsequent rally, obviously, to me, makes no sense. But, you know, here we are. You, you know, you put, you, you drew the line and I think peak to trough, we had like a 13% or so decline in the NASDAQ. And not that 13% means anything, but it basically stopped spot on that uptrend line that you drew so well. So here we are now seemingly going to retest that previous all-time high right around 13,900 or so that we saw, I guess, in, in February 16th or thereabouts. You know, all these things seem to be a foregone conclusion just vis-a-vis -vis the fact that the market continues to be on autopilot. We're going to talk about the VIX in a little while, but I'll sort of jump the shark, as they say, and say, you know, here we are, by the way, with a VIX below 20. And we're going to obviously talk about that. But 
you know, that all lends itself to these markets continuing to sort of levitate to levels that don't make a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't matter. It's something we talk about all the time. Trade the market you have, Dan Nathan, not the one that you want or think you should have. Yeah, I think it, I just listen I, again. I'll go back to the fact that when you see the NDX acting this way with a sharp bounce, that means that money has moved back into those mega cap names, which I think is a good segue because you talked about the violent bounce off the lows in the NDX that was already underperforming the S&P 500 before we kind of had that uh, sell off over the last couple of weeks. Look at the Russell 2000, the small Bring cap it up. index. Bring and what I up. think is interesting, you know, there was a point guy last year when Apple's market cap, okay, nearing two trillion or something, was greater than that of the Russell two thousand. Yeah. That is two thousand small cap stocks. Now the outperformance since the election has been just staggering. We see sixteen hundred, um, almost as high as what twenty three fifty or something just the other day. But it is it is struggling here. Well, not really struggling, but it is um, straddling that uptrend from the November lows. It held it like a boss in January. It held it again um, in February. It broke in March, but it came right back up, and it's kind of struggling there. That was a very very sharp rally. We know that a lot of names. Um, in the small caps are very economically sensitive and the expectations for a better economy have risen pretty dramatically yeah. with vaccines and the stimulus and the potential for infrastructure. Well, I mean, think about this. I mean, th- you know, whether it's coincidence or not, you saw a 50, 50% move in the yeah. Russell from that November, from that November point you, you're, 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 you illustrated here with your trend line right around election day. By the way, coincidentally or not, you saw a 50% move in 10-year yields, right? I mean, you saw 10-year yields go basically from 1% to 1.5%. And I think that, that that's all part and parcel. So that makes sense. I mean, people will say the most economic, economically sensitive sector or discipline or security is the Russell. And so it makes sense that it rallied the way it did. What I will tell you, though, is... You know, at a certain point, the, these rates that have been a tailwind are going to become a headwind for a lot of these small companies where, you know, cost of capital and, and financing that debt means something. And here we are at one six in the 10 year. And here we are with this Russell continuing to climb higher. It set, sets up for a pretty interesting move. Now, when we broke that very steep uptrend, which we've talked about a few times on the macro setup, I, like you, thought we'd absolutely revisit that 200-day moving average, which comes in around 17.5-ish. Yeah. Uh, we obviously got nowhere close, and here we are again, you know, making new all-time highs. I will tell you, though, that moves of this magnitude, you know, as steep as this is and as profound, you know, again, a 50% move over a very short period of time, it's just you're getting in the nosebleed territory, and you have to wonder how long this music's going to last. And this goes back to the original conversation we had about, you know, playing this out until tax day, you know, we'll see who pulls the trigger first, but don't, don't um, discount a significant downdraft over the next couple of weeks in the Russell, especially if rates keep grinding higher. You know, it's funny. You mentioned earlier about the craps table. You and I had a pretty epic night. I think it was like sure, we did. 2017 at the, at the win and, and you were playing craps. You were in your glory. I'd never like seen a you boss. so happy. Like a boss. I'd never seen you so happy, but what was really interesting, I think you just said something like this was like, this is the most epic bull run at a, a, a craps table or whatever. Here's the difference about what's going on in the stock market, which, you know, maybe people want to boomer us or whatever. But when we started in the business, 
business in the late 90s, even in the early 2000s. You know, the house never re-upped you on chips just for just for showing up. You oh, know? You, look at you. I like that. But, but you sound thing. like me now. Well, I, I mean, listen, you know, I, I guess what, what's really changed for me since the financial crisis, because we really did not see this in the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, is that companies were left to die on the vine. People who, you know, um, extended themselves in the stock market weren't really given a bailout, that sort of thing. And there was a lot of things that went on. 9-11 was obviously a big part of that um, period of time. And there was a lot of corporate malfeasance. And there was a lot of stuff. But things worked themselves out. And regulations changed. I think for the better this time around since the financial crisis, it just seems like we're just going to continue to socialize losses and we're going to just continue to increasingly privatize gains. And it just gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And I just don't know if that's what this has turned into a lot of these financial markets, the way that they've been gamified. It's just very odd to me. And, and maybe I'm just born in the wrong time, I guess, you know, guy, Dami? you're trying, you're trying, that was, by the way, that was Artful. Uh, you're trying to trigger me and you're succeeding because everything you just said, you know, I adhere to all this. We, you know, yeah. socialized losses. I mean, I've said this for a while. If you think you live in a capitalist society, think again, folks, because there are no losers here and it's lent itself to a lot of bad behavior. And I'm a big believer in corporate Darwinism and allowing things to sort of yeah. shake out because I will tell you, for example, I'm not looking for people to lose their jobs, but you know, if the airline industry failed for whatever reason, I will tell you as sure as I sit here that the airline industry wasn't going away. It would have come back in a different form and maybe a better form, you know, maybe a more reliable form, maybe a more efficient form. If you just allow things that would have been painful to get there. I'm the first one to tell you that. But you, know, you have to allow these things to happen the same way, you know, GM and Ford back in the day, um, you know, see what happens, because I will tell you the audio industry wasn't going away, would have come back in a different form. But the fact that we continue to reward bad behavior, listen, it's great for the stock market, I guess, but it doesn't end well at the but, end of the day. Yeah, we're it, creating new bad behaviors too. So like, for instance, this new nearly $2 trillion in stimulus, I keep reading stories and thing, seeing things on the web about how much of this stimmy is going to go into Bitcoin or how much is it going to go into a meme stock or whatever. And we're just, we're, we're literally creating this, this cycle. Sure. Uh, and it's just very dangerous. All right, let's go to the VIX. Speaking of danger, this is the fear index. You like to talk about it. Um, we've been drawing that line from its February 2020 highs from yeah. the left to the yeah. right. Great line. It's held that support nearly the whole time around 20. Here we are. It's finally breaking that line. Um, will we see some meaningfully closes behind that? Because really what that means is that the S&P is squeezing higher. Were you a fan of the, uh, I know it's before your time, so please don't say I wasn't born then. Were you a fan of the show Lost in Space? No. No. Well, actually, um, I think Guy Williams, by the way, was one of the stars. One of the first uh, actors that I was aware of that was named Guy. Is Guy Lombardi is, or was the other one, or Lombardo, whatever. Anyway, I bring that up because one of the famous lines from that show was, danger will robinson and with the vix below 20 again yeah. it's just my opinion but i think we're in that danger will robinson zone because we shouldn't be in an environment where the vix is south of 20 i understand what's going on people feel empowered and they say wait a second you know why do we need to be long volatility in an environment where stocks only go higher and even when we see these moves in the vix they last a day or two 
and it's right back down. So I think people are of the view that, you know what, if the VIX spikes higher, we're going to take advantage of it by selling naked puts or whatever they're going to do vis-a-vis taking advantage of a higher VIX. That's great. Um, but you obviously saw what happened last February and March. So you see how quickly something that was a 20 handle goes to an 80 handle. And I don't think we're going back to an 80 handle, but I also don't think we're going to stay below 20 for much longer. A lot of people, by the way, think we're going back to 13 and a half, 14, where we started this whole charade back before COVID in you know January, February of last year. We'll see what happens, Dan. But you know, VIX below 20 to me is a is it's just a it's a dangerous, it just speaks to the complacency of the market and it speaks to how you know my fears might be misguided, but they still, yeah. you know, they grow each day. Yeah, let's ra- wrap up this little equity section because we got a couple sure, of things wrap to it up. before we get to Christopher Vecchio. I mean, I, I think the point is what, what why I was hoping for a meaningful sell-off when I mean something to the tune of, let's say, 10% in the S&P 500 is that the markets right now anticipate a lot of good news. They anticipate that our country, um, the economy, schools, all that said, will be reopened um, at some point by the end of the summer, that the vaccine rollout has gone amazingly well, that we will lead the global recovery um, economic in, in, in many different ways. Um, and so I think a lot of that is kind of priced in. So it would have been really nice to kind of see a little bit of a washout, take out some of the excess, have a revaluation set, uh, you know, like, you know, just a little bit of a change and then set up for a build into when that happens, right? A little bit. So it didn't happen. It happened really quickly. Let's move to Bitcoin. And I think, you know, on the macro setup, why do we keep kind of focusing on Bitcoin? Not that we're focusing so much on it. We just kind of, I think it's really interesting. It's a trillion dollar nearly market cap now. And we know that a lot of the themes in the market, whether it be about debasing currencies or about inflation or whatever, like this is the new gold, whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, like make no mistake about it. And maybe Vecchio is going to hit gold for us later. I just think it's really interesting to see um, you know, the size of the market cap of crypto, specifically Bitcoin right here, and understanding that um, it might, you know, it might move with sentiment and we might see people take profits into tax law. Who knows? But this is a really interesting one to keep an eye on. There's been two meaningful corrections here in January. It was a nearly 30% correction from 42,000 back to that trend line mm-hmm. near 30,000. And then last month we had like a 20 some, uh, 25% correction. We made new highs over the weekend, nearly 62,000. We're down about 10% from that. So just keep an eye on that. I would suspect it holds that uptrend unless there's some massive regulatory thing. I think the thing that spooked people over the last day or so was something about India banning it. And you could say to me, well, how can you ban it? Well, you can regulate a lot of ways in which people interact it. Let's talk with the dollar. This is more your wheelhouse, Guy Adami. And we're going to spend more time on the dollar in a little bit. But what's your take on the Dixie right here? Um, you had a great call for the better part of a year here. Um, we've had a little bit of a bounce. We're below that one year um, downtrend. We're, we're kind of straddling that kind of breakdown level right from november december yeah. what do you think with the dixie right here well as i like to say you know for the last couple of months i've been rong wrong in the old dollar you know i thought the rally which you anticipated i, I think you anticipated exactly what we're seeing i thought it'd be much shorter lived and i never thought we'd get back to these levels you know, i thought these rallies would be um shorter and shorter and i thought they'd come in the form of a flight to quality on the back of an equity sell-off so sort of right, sort of wrong. But, you know, here we are with a stronger dollar, which, by the way, it should be given where yields are going. I mean, the dollar should be strengthening as yields go higher. That hadn't been the case for a long time. But what I will tell you is, 
know, all the things we're hearing about now next is an infrastructure bill. Uh, this yeah. $1.9 trillion relief. This is not dollar positive. There are people out there, by the way, that will somehow um, explain to you how this is all very dollar positive. Obviously, I don't see it. You know, you're basically creating these things out of thin air. And by definition, it should be deleterious to the price action. But here we are now. So I think the dollar is being buoyed by uh, the strength or the weakness in bonds or the strength in yields, as they say. And I think, you know, we're here, but I don't think we're going to be here for long. So, again, I'll point out that over the last couple of weeks, dead wrong. But I do think the next, you know, 10 to 15 percent move in the dollar is going to be lower. Maybe. All right. So I'm just going to go to Maybe. the next chart. It's, Maybe. It's, it's yes. Five year chart of the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield, which you were just talking about. Yes, and I was. I you know, we the keep two go hand in hand, part and I know, parcel, we, as they say. Keep, but you have a 2% target in the 10-year treasury pretty soon. You look at that um, channel that I have there, you know, we're already, you know, above that one and a half, which was resistance, uh, prior support here. You know, if you're going to, you know, it, I mean, on that chart, it looks like a straight shot to 2%. If it's going to 2%, the dollar is not going lower, um, in, in my opinion. Okay, so we'll, we'll leave that for Vecchio. Um, that's the five-year chart let, uh, of the of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Let's now go to the 30-year chart. This one is pretty fascinating. We've done this one before um, here. You know, you have a – look at that line. I mean, look at yeah. that downtrend. Yeah. And then I, I show that channel again. And I think that channel, you know, between one and a half and two is really interesting because over the last five years, you know, you put that together on the upper end and you get to 2%. So there's your 2%. I mean, like, that's it. But I just don't see it going meaningfully higher than that. When you think about the global debt binge we are on, I think, um, you know, servicing that debt might really cause a problem if, if rates go too much higher. So to me, you might get your 2%, then you may get your dollar weakness. How's that guy? Yeah. And listen, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, th I clearly understand why higher rates are in, in this global world of debt, where I think global debt to GDP is now 110% or some heinous number, uh, you know, in my opinion, unsustainable number and higher rates obviously don't help that. But to your point, you know, rates can't go higher because of that. I would say I might take the counter and say rates will go higher because of that. But that's a macroeconomic theory stuff, Dan, that we don't want to bore uh, our audience with. I think now, by the way, is an excellent time, if I may. May I do this? Yeah. To bring in, to bring in a guest. Now, Chris, tell me if I'm wrong. We're going to bring in Christopher Vecchio, senior strategist from Daily FX. Is this your third or fourth voyage with us here on the macro setup? Oh, I believe this is our uh, fourth trip. That's uh, what I thought as back well. Again. Well, welcome. So. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to... A sort of the diatribe we've been on for the last you know twenty minutes or so. You know, I know you have yeah, some and if I, may, I also know you brought. Yeah, that's a, that's why you're it, here. Of course, you. Yeah, may. you know, the, the I, I thought the three things guaranteed in life were death, taxes, and the Knicks losing. Which yeah, uh, if you I have like a good 18, nice job by you. I appreciate. If you have an eighteen footer, I really we really need your help. Uh, nice dig on tough. the Knicks. Well done by you. Although they did <laughs> play the Nets of Brooklyn very tough last night. In a losing fashion. By the way, so here we are, Chris. Again. Here's your first chart. Talk to us. Right. So, you know, you bring up this point about U.S. Treasury yields and the long-term charts. And when we think about the macro theory, uh, as Dan alluded to, uh, we have this huge issuance coming to pay for the rising deficits in Biden's meals plans. Uh, increasing the supply of treasuries should, in theory, help continue to drag down price and therefore push up yields. I, I think there's a sound argument to be made on that front. And also for the near term, the inflation picture looks like we're going to get some hot readings. Uh, 
if you were to take the 0.4% month over month gain we had in February and just push that out for each of the next few months, by the time we get to May, thanks to this big base effect we have from last year, we're talking about an inflation rate close to 3.8%. And the Fed's going to have to look through that. But the market, of course, could react with higher, uh, higher yields still. And we could still see that push to two. To that point, while I am still longer term bearish on the dollar index, we can't ignore the fact that higher yields in the short term could allow the dollar index to right. continue to trade higher in the next few weeks. Right. Uh, and so a few weeks ago, I wrote, is it time for the turn? We're seeing yields go up. We're seeing the situation with the euro get a little bit worse because of the vaccine differentials compared to the UK or the US. Maybe it's time for a dollar bounce. Uh, I, I do think there may be a little bit more here the next few weeks, considering that we're actually in the weakest part of the year, seasonally speaking, for risk heading into tax season. And that could be something that uh, perhaps drives more demand for the greenback itself. So all in all, uh, yes, I, I do see potential for further gains here, particularly as the next chart shows the euro, the largest component of the dollar index at 57.6%. It still looks pretty weak having just lost this uptrend from uh, last June. And we see all this nonsense that's going on in Europe with the vaccines. I mean, just look at the numbers. UK, 35 vaccines per 100 people. Uh, US, 31. EU 10. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute joke. And for all the talk we've had for years about how, you know, will the euro stay together? There really hasn't been a sound, rational reason. This may actually be the most rational reason to doubt the euro's ability to exist into the future, that the single biggest test that they faced, they failed. Yeah, it's so interesting. Chris, no, I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, but I was just going to say, so, so you know, it seemed that last year um, there was just the flip side. People were really bullish on euro, bearish on dollar, you know, and so um, it, it's kind of interesting how the page turns here um, and we're doing better on the vaccines. Is it the, is it is it just is it just a near term economic argument or is it a longer term political argument that you think is what what, what possibly dooms the euro? You know, like last May when we got the news about that European recovery fund, that kind of changed the narrative. Oh, wow, it looks like Europe's moving towards fiscal union. Finally, uh, yeah. they're getting their act together. Now, all of a sudden, they, they can't even distribute vaccines. This whole AstraZeneca nonsense, yeah. it's no less efficacious or any more harmful than Pfizer or Moderna. And yet, you know, today the EU announced that they now have a deal in place with BioNTech, the German company, not the British one. I mean, yeah. they're letting short-term politics dominate uh, an existential threat. So I do think that there is some political risk that's creeping back in here. You know, a year ago, you have Europe getting its act together and the U.S., you know, saying that it's a hoax. And now Biden is putting forth what's perhaps the most transformative spending plan since Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society. And Europe is, you know, playing footsie with different vaccine distributors because of, you know, uh, uh, what seems to be nationalism, you know, German vaccines over British ones. I think yeah. Chris Vecchio should teach like a European history class at one of these universities, because he's breaking it down. You know, I've said whether I'm right or wrong, I'm typically wrong, but, you know, the euro is, you know, the, the euro, basically those 18 countries or so, one of the great failed experiments of the 20th and then subsequently 21st century. And I think in a lot of ways, what Chris speaks to is playing itself out right before our eyes. Anyway, Chris, as we used to say on Match Game, slide it all to your next chart, uh, because this to me is very interesting as well. You know, for all the talk about the pound being uh, pounded because of Brexit, it's really been quite the opposite. It's, it's done really well with the vaccination schedules. And because markets are forward looking, people are thinking about not the poor Q4 or, or early Q1 GDP figures, which look pretty damning, but rather the forward looking numbers where the UK economy is 
likely to achieve its potential, get back to its pre-COVID uh, output faster than most of the developed economies, save you know Bahrain, UAE, and maybe Israel. Uh, and that's a really good thing for, for Britain. And in this post-Brexit world now, you have the EU and, and Britain seemingly moving in different directions. Uh, the British pound has a lot of ground to make up if it returns back to some you know, pre-Brexit fugue state that it's been in the last few years. You're talking about rates that are higher up in the 150s, 160s possible. Um, and, and this is one of those reasons why, as someone who's looking at the you know, aggregate picture of what the dollar index looks like, you know, if the pound looks like it could rally some more, then that becomes one of those factors that makes a dollar index uh, rebound, if any material sense, difficult on a long-term basis. Chris, let's talk um, commodities a little bit here um, because let's talk inflation. I guess you know, um, you know, it seems like that is the the the, the word um, that most people are really fearing as it relates to kind of what that means for the equity markets, uh, what that means for the the Fed to change their kind of course. Um, you, you know, the, the, from increasingly. Um, just kind of doubling down on the dovish sort of sentiment, right? And there's a lot of people out there who are starting to say that they're just their hand is going to be forced. What's your take on that? And are we going to start to see some mild tweaking of the way they think about um, their prior inflation guidance? I think that if the Fed is going to do anything, I mean, we have a meeting coming up tomorrow. Um, so by the time people listen to this, it may have come and passed. Uh, and hopefully this this prognostication is right. But if the Fed's going to do anything, they're not going to talk about raising rates yet because that completely bypasses the taper conversation. And if you really want to get a taper tantrum in market, let's ignore that and let's go right to raising rates. That will spook everyone. And so the first thing that the Fed needs to do is to address this uh, supplementary uh, leverage requirement that banks have in place right now, where at the start of the pandemic, the Fed said, you don't need to count treasuries against your capital ratios. And so that extension, well, that requirement's about to, to, to run out of runway. And if we don't get an extension there, banks could, in theory, be forced to either sell down treasury holdings or uh, sell off other assets to get their capital ratios in place. So first things first, if the Fed wants to avoid more volatility in the bond market, just tweak that, extend the SLR, let it go for a few more weeks, a few more months, rather, uh, and then perhaps come June or September, we begin to outline taper conditions. Uh, but if the Fed were to go to rate hike territory now, it really puts their credibility at risk because you can't outline a, we're going to keep rates low until 2023. And then, you know, all of a sudden some bond vigilantes get a hold of the steering wheel for a few weeks and, you know, they're backtracking it. It really bodes poorly for them as an institution long-term. So we're locked in here. I would think the Fed's going to martingale this all the way down into existence. And we're more likely to get yield curve control than for the Fed to buck and back away from its efforts to keep rates low. Chris Vecchio dropping some serious knowledge here, man. Rate control, twist. I mean, the whole, you got it all going on. Listen, I know gold, obviously, you know, it's been, it's interesting. I don't really view gold as a commodity. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm not sure, but I know you have some thoughts on gold. I want to sort of, you know, get your thoughts there. I will tell you that, you know, if you told me everything was going to take place over the last six to nine months, I would have said gold is significantly through that high we saw last summer. Yet here we are languishing sort of around 1700-ish. What are your thoughts on the old uh, yellow metal, as they say, Chris Vecchio? Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. And I'm certainly, this is one of those uh, charts where if you told me the fundamental backdrop of low rates and high deficits, I would have said that gold would be much higher. But what we've seen turn is that the real yield conversations changed, right? It's gone from, you know, we're just mm -hmm. getting higher inflation expectations to we're actually now getting uh, higher real yields. And so with real yields going up, with earnings potential actually increasing for, for stocks, why do you want to hold 
an asset that has no coupon dividend yield, any cash flow whatsoever returning to you. And this is kind of the NASDAQ's problem where in an inflationary environment, you want businesses that are generating cash today because of the you know, inflation, you're losing your purchasing power if you're getting your cash tomorrow or in a month's time or a year's right. time. So you want cash flow positive businesses now. Gold is not that. It's one of the reasons why even within like the S&P 500. So with gold, you know, as I said, coming into this year, I like the pair trade of long silver, short gold, long copper, short gold. Uh, and those are playing out really well right now yeah. because I like the economically sensitive metals rather than the safe haven metals. All right. Well, listen, we, we uh, you know, we hit a lot of stuff today. Um, you know, Guy and I obviously focused on the equity markets. We focused on what rates and dollar um, and inflation expectations um, might mean for equity investors coming forward. The tax stuff is pretty interesting. Um, your take, Christopher, on um, some of these uh, crosses with the dollar, really fascinating. It's really important to think. I know that we're really kind of hunkered down here and thinking about what's going on here in the U.S. as we're doing with the vaccine and what um, expectations are for the back half of the year reopening. But it's really a good um, reminder to keep a sense on some of these crosses with the dollar because they're a good indication of how other regions are doing. So thanks a lot for that. Um, Guy, I'll let you take us out, man. It was great to have Chris with us. Love having Christopher Vecchio with us now, the fourth time senior uh, FX strategy strategist at Daily FX. Thanks, Chris. For joining us again, we absolutely will have you back. Dan, Nathan, thank you. As always, thanks to our audience. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. We will see you here next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of The Macro Setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.